Let's read some Bible. And we'll be reading from the text, 1 Thessalonians 4. Just read 16, 17, and then we'll pray together. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, reads as follows. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Let's pray. For this reason we bow our knees before You, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of Your glory, You may grant treasuring Christ church members to be strengthened with power through Your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of You, God. So now to You, God, who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to You be glory in this church. And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Jesus is coming again. It's a great topic. I think I need to scream the whole sermon. I'm going to scream it! The energy of the music has been fantastic this morning because the topic of Jesus coming again should blow our minds. It should fire us up. Right? One thing I really like about the coming of Jesus and dwelling on it is that I don't know much about the future. Right? There's a lot that I don't know. We've got Ebola claiming lives in Liberia, right? We don't know if Gaza is going to be more than a crater in two weeks. The city where we were in Turkey, Trabzon, is now the uh, sexual traffic capital of the universe, and we don't know how those women are going to be in two weeks from now, or maybe you don't like to think globally more personally. I don't know what my life is going to look like. Two weeks from now, I don't know what my family is going to look like next year. My growth, some of you might say. <laughs> but we don't know the future, right? Our health, we have no guarantees there. My kids are starting a new school this year. I don't know if they're going to be able to hack that or not. I know I'm growing older. I have questions about death. I don't know when my own death's going to happen or the death of my loved one. There's just a lot of uncertainty about the future, you may have heard the old worn-out line that nothing is guaranteed in life besides death and taxes. We can add a third one this morning. The Eagles will never win the Super Bowl. No, that's not it. Different sermon. A third one this morning is Jesus is coming back. Whatever you don't know about the future, you can be satisfied in this knowledge. Jesus will Return. It's all of the scriptures. I'll just read a couple for you and then we'll get going. Matthew 24:44. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Acts 1:11. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into 
heaven. Hebrews 9, 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. So Jesus is coming again. And there's a lot to rejoice about here, right? A lot of approach angles if we want to get at His majesty in His second coming. Here's going to be our goal today. Whatever angle we take, we want to do it in such a way that it stays with us throughout the week. That it's not just intellectual input about the doctrine. Because it's in the future, it's easy to do, right? Well, I know that's going to happen, but it doesn't really impact the rest of my week. What we want to do is to study this in such a way that we can carry it with us so that our thoughts, our decisions, our habits this week are all flavored with the return of Jesus. This week, uh, Two weeks ago now, uh, you guys were very kind and you gave me a vacation. So I had a week off and I knew this was coming. So I put it on my calendar six months ahead and as it came closer and closer, I noticed something. I began to think a lot about it and plan for it. I had to call my family members and say, hey, we're getting together for this vacation. How are we going to do this? I had to do all my work ahead of time so that when I got back I wasn't slammed. We bought different groceries than normal. Gone with the water, in came Cheerwine, right? A lot of Hershey bars showed up for the s'mores. Turkey bacon disappeared. Real bacon came. A lot of things had to change and I thought myself, Got myself thinking, I called my uh, family member and said, how are we going to do devotions here? Because your family's going to be with my family and we've got to work this out. It was something that I thought about all the time. It, the certain knowledge of it coming impacted the way I lived my life. And the coming of Christ should be the same way. You see, it's a game changer. We call that treasuring Christ, by the way. If you have certain doctrinal knowledge and then it begins to change the way you live, that is treasuring Christ. So when we think about Christ's coming, we know He's going to accomplish a lot of things. Uh, He's going to bring His people to Himself. There's going to be a face-to-face nature of that coming. He will judge all who oppose Him in that day. He'll establish a new heaven, a new earth. He'll save all of His people from the wrath of God. And He will vindicate God's name among the nations. A lot will happen here. What I want to do today is focus in on one thing and then see how we can apply that this week. So what we're going to try to focus on today is the part of His coming that says, in the coming of Christ, God renews life. In the coming of Jesus, God renews light. If you're taking notes, not a complex outline, that's the point. In the coming of Christ, God renews life. And what I mean by that is that God's good purposes for the life of His creation, both cosmic and personal, all of those are going to be fully accomplished when Jesus comes. So when Jesus is coming, He's going to finish the job that God started with life. He's going to renew it and perfect it. I want to be clear here, one way in this, how this reveals Christ to be beautiful. Um, when, when you think about the future, like I just mentioned, uh, things appear not only out of your control sometimes, but sometimes they even appear out of God's control, right? And, and that can make the future doubly troubling for us. Uh, after all, one of the chief complaints I hear about God sometimes when I'm talking to people is that if you really have a really good God and He really is in control, 
And what in the world's going on in the world? Why is there a murder in Fayetteville, right? Why is it messed up in Iraq where ISIS, these brutal people, are taking over? God's got a lot of answer for, people will say, if He really is good and in control. How can He let death persist? That is a question. And we're going to get at that today because it seems like that part of, of the future is a little out of whack to people. Uh, let's start by turning to Hebrews chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2. Here's a section where the author goes at great lengths to say that Jesus is the boss. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2. If you're not there, just listen. Hebrews chapter 2. He's saying that Jesus had made the earth. Jesus' days have no end. He's way superior to the angels. And angels are the people or the beings that we think about being close to God. Well, Jesus is superior to them, says the author of Hebrews. He begins to even quote Psalm 8 to remind us of Jesus' greatness here. So this is Hebrews 2, uh, starting in verse 5. Listen to the language here. For it was not the aim to the angels that God subjected the world to come. Get that phrase, subjected the world to come, because that means that the angels aren't controlling the world. But the future, the world to come, is subjected to who? It's to Jesus. It's not the, the angels that God subjected the world, of which we are speaking, as it has been testified somewhere else, that's somewhere, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man? Son of man is the title of Jesus, so this is going to be about Jesus. What is man that you care for him? Verse 7. You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Again, the language subjection, control. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, Jesus... He left nothing outside of His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus being crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of His death. What we see in this passage is that the Bible is trying to tell us that because of Jesus' death, He was crowned with glory and honor. He accomplished that. He, since He proved Himself King of the world, by dying for the world's sins, He is now controlling. He, everything has been subjected to Jesus. And that even conclude, includes the evil things that I talked about earlier. Things going on in Gaza are a part of His rule. Things going on in Iraq part of His rule. What this text says, though, is that we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. Did you see that? We don't see it, but it is in subjection to Him. Well, what do we see that's in subjection? What is He controlling that we can visibly see? Well, one of the things is life change in the lives of His people. When someone meets Christ, truly, you will see them doing about face. And their actions will change. How they spend their money will change. We saw it a minute ago when we were all singing these songs. That's visible proof that Jesus is ruling. We are in subjection to Him because we're all getting together and singing these songs that would not make sense if He was not ruling in our lives. So we can see the power, the visible change in people's lives. But according to this text, there's something that we cannot see yet. And one of those things is the defeat of death. It's hard for us to see that. Uh, at the time of his death in 1870, 
uh, Tale of Two Cities, author Charles Dickens. You guys know Charles Dickens? Uh, he was perhaps, most, at the time, the most celebrated writer in the English language when he died. And his last book, you may never heard of it, is called The Mystery of Edwin Drood. It's a murder mystery, and he was writing it. It was supposed to be a great book. It's actually being released a chapter at a time, because that's how they used to do it. And then, tragically, he died at age 58 before he got the book finished. And the dude left no notes, no plot sketches. So here's this great author dying in the middle of his book and he's written most of it, the mystery but you never find out who did it. And so lots of authors have tried to fill it in but it's always dissatisfying because after all it's not Dickens but even the greatest authors can sometimes leave you with a a bad taste in your mouth because you don't know the end and that's the way death does. We don't know how this thing is going to end. Uh, that's what's happening. We understand that story is unfinished with death. What completes the plot is the return of Jesus. So there's a feeling now that Jesus' work hasn't been completed because death is still active. When He comes back, He is going to complete the story. Another way of saying this is, when Jesus Christ comes, He will complete God's purposes for the universe. He's going to finish the job, complete the story. He will renew life. So when Christ comes to complete the story of God's purposes, He's going to be the death of all death, and He is going to be life to His people. So what do I mean by the death of all death? Well, remember death's beginning. Think way back with me, if you can, to when death began it began in Adam's rebellion. At the very start of the Bible, we have this story. The first man was put here to rule well. He was going to spread life throughout the planet. Life was popping up everywhere. He was managing the garden and we saw a river of life there in the garden. We saw a tree of life there in the garden and Adam was to manage this life and spread it through his marriage to Eve. They would have little life givers. They would have kids and the kids would spread life and life was supposed to flow. That was God's plan. But Adam tainted his own holiness by sinning, by turning away from God in rebellion and saying, I want to be king instead of you, God. And so at that moment, God's purpose is interrupted for life for his creation and death comes in as a punishment for Adam's sin. So this is where death comes in. And the rest of the Old Testament reads like a bunch of criminals' rap sheet. Right? All these people deserving the death penalty because they sin against God. They sin against the Creator. They rebel against Him. And you see God exerting some wrath and then holding some back. Exerting some wrath and then holding some back. And death really gets on a roll in the Old Testament. That's where it came from. But look what God promises to His people in the midst of all this death simmering in the storyline of salvation. If you want to turn to Ezekiel 37, you can. I know we're turning a lot, but that's fun. Ezekiel 37. If you can't, just look and listen. Here we have a first-person account of Ezekiel the prophet talking to God in the midst of a world riddled with decay. Listen to the promises of God. So this is in the middle of all this death and decay. Listen to what God promises. Ezekiel writes, verse 1, chapter 37. But the hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and He set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And He led me around among them, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So He's got a vision here of dead bones. 
And he says to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Listen to the life-death language here. Can these live? And I answered, O oh Lord God, You know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall what? Live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will call flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God promises here to overcome death with life. It's still a part of His purpose even with all the destruction going on in the world. All the rebellion is still a part of His purpose to overcome it with life. And we see that promise there. God's promised to overcome death in such a phenomenal way that He will open the graves of His people, He says later in that chapter. A new era will dawn and the purpose of life will be restored. Everything will be renewed. Life's greatest foe, death, indeed, as we sang, will be vanquished. That's why it's such an exciting topic. This is the death of all death. You know, the disease smallpox is one of humanity's Humanity's oldest and deadliest killer. We don't talk about smallpox anymore, but it was a big deal. Did you know that not only was it found in the old ancient Egyptian mummies as killing Egyptian rulers a long time ago, that in the 18th century, an estimated 400,000 Europeans died a year from smallpox. 80% of the infected children died from this disease. 300 million people during the 20th century have died from smallpox. Huge killer. But then, through the hard work of scientists and God's providence, of course, by 1980, a vaccination was uh, developed that could eradicate smallpox completely. And now, 20, 25 years later, not a big deal. We don't even think about smallpox claiming the lives of our loved ones. And that's what it's going to be like. That's the foretaste of the death of all death that Jesus Christ will bring. A wipe off. Death will be an afterthought in Jesus' return. If you know the biblical storyline, you know that Jesus, in His own righteous death and subsequent resurrection, He did just that. If we bump ahead in our Bibles now to John 3, we see Jesus talking with a man named Nicodemus. In John 3, Jesus is seen talking with a guy named Nicodemus. And he seemed to know that Jesus was from God. He starts this conversation with him. And Jesus answers uh, in this conversation with an answer of life. Guy's just asking about God. And Jesus brings up the the idea, concept of life. Verse 2, John chapter 3. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs unless he's from God. And Jesus answered, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. See, the guy brings up God, and Jesus answers with life, right? You've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's, he's missing it. Right? Uh, he totally whiffed on that one. Jesus answers, Well, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again, he says. And you can hear 
Ezekiel dripping from Jesus' lips here. If you've read chapter 36 of Ezekiel, there's mention of the Spirit bringing life. Chapter 37 that we just read, uh, he mentions uh, the Spirit and the water. Uh, wonderful, wonderful quotation there. Later in John 10.10, 10, Jesus said that He came so that people, His people may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus was all about bringing life and renewing life in His ministry. How is He going to accomplish it? He goes and pays the price earned by death. He pays the the wages of sin is death. So Jesus comes and He pays that for everybody who believes on Him. So now the separation resulting in death that was between God and His people is eliminated by Jesus' death. His sacrifice pays for the sins of all of His people. And He's able to bring life. And that's glorious. And I treasure Him for that. But here at the cross, there's also a justice side. Death is still persisting because there are still people who are rebelling against Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to make it clear that there's still hope for you to follow Him. You can turn to Jesus away from rebellion. And God promises all who do that, no matter how late in life, no matter how early, everyone who turns to Jesus will receive life and not the punishment of death. Submitting to Christ as your Creator and your God and treasuring Him, that's the way to eternal life. So as an unbeliever here, we want to talk to you about these things. If you have questions about it, please see me or somebody else after the sermon. We would love to talk about life in Jesus Christ. Back in the Bible, at Jesus' resurrection, after three days being dead, He was got the stamp of approval by God, saying that, yes, your sacrifice worked. I'm going to prove it by bringing you to life. And so Jesus, in an amazing way, comes back to life. And we see others resurrected with Jesus. It's kind of a, they're caught up in the current of life dripped on by God. It's caught up and people start being resurrected there in Israel. It's a wild thing, but it's another sign that God is bringing life. He's renewing everything through Jesus Christ. And we read in Hebrews 2.15 that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and he's going to deliver all those who the fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, you might remember, Paul says that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? God's people are now blessed to live as new creatures, alive to God instead of being dead to Him. But in the midst of all this good news, there still remains a problem, right? We're still living in flesh, and our flesh is dying. We're still living in a world that is corrupted, and so we still see death. Our bodies are wasting away. The older you get, the more you realize that some are wasting faster than others. None of us, no matter what we eat, how much we exercise, are going to ultimately avoid physical death. So that's the problem. Ebola still hurts us. 
Our arteries are going to clog. We still need the V foundation. His death is still here. And there's a sense when He's persisting here. And so that brings the question then. If we are born again in Christ, if Christ is the Mac Daddy of all life givers, right? Why is death still reigning here? Or, as the writer of Hebrews said, why do we not see death in subjection to Jesus, right? Why don't we see everything following in line with His purposes? Well, in one sense, the answer is simple. Christ began His kingdom of life in His resurrection, but it's not yet finished. It's like the Dickens story. The story isn't complete yet. Uh, one analogy for this is when Jesus came, uh, he, life was began to be renewed. The kingdom of God was started in His resurrection, but not yet completed. An analogy would be we shared before. It's like when a president gets elected in November, right? He, he, he's elected and he's president in a sense in that you know who's going to be the president for the next four years, right? It's going to be this guy. But he doesn't take office until January, so there's this in-between period that's just really weird for everybody involved. The old president's like, I'm still here, but what can I do? The new guy's trying to set in. There's even stories of furniture being moved out of the White House. It's complicated and it's messy, and that's the way it is now because death has ran an election against Christ, and Christ has won the election, right? But... Christ hasn't fully come to take office in the sense that He hasn't come and His kingdom hasn't been consummated. So death still persists. But that still leaves the why question, right? Well, why God set it up this way? Why does there have to be this uh, lame duck kind of period here? Why is, what's that about? Well, God's more infinite than we are, so we will never fully know, but we do have some hints here in why did God not end death in the first coming of Christ. Here's one reason. God is letting death linger until the return of Christ in part so that we can see His holy justice and be in awe of Him. So death is the punishment of evil. And if God doesn't administer death, He appears to be unjust and not to be trusted like a judge who would let a child murderer just walk back on the street. You don't want to worship that kind of guy. You wouldn't want to worship a God who is not just. And so the persistence of death will and should remind us of God's justice against all who rebel against Him. I know it's horrifying justice, but it's better than an unjust God. So death is given a short leash here, right? Another reason why death is persisting, even though Christ is ruling, everything is in subjection to Him. Without death to view, we could never appreciate the mercy and grace we have in receiving new life, right? Without the backdrop, the context of death, to compare it to, new life wouldn't taste as good. What glory is there in a Savior who grants new life if the old life is just fine, right? So we will glory more in Jesus Christ and the life He brings as we view this in the backdrop of death. Even though death is an antagonist that's doomed to fail in God's story, He's still playing a part here that will one day glorify God. Now let's return and read First Thessalonians again together. Now we have a little bit more of a backdrop, a little bit more of a context, and just take a few points. 
Back to 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and will always be with the Lord. Note a couple things here. First, Christ is coming Himself. Why didn't He send some angels to do this or some martyrs alone? Well, only Christ has the voice has defeated death. Only God in Jesus has the power. In the sermon last week, there's only one lion, lamb figure who's able to open scroll, and that's Jesus. So He comes Himself to defeat death. Another point, His coming is going to be public. Those around will not miss this. Three things seem really Loud here. First, there's the cry of command when Jesus comes. Second, the voice of an archangel. Probably won't be a whisper, right? The big archangel coming. And finally, there's going to be the trumpet of God. If you want to hear the drums of Brian Sylvester, you can sit on the front row and you'll hear it loudly. How much more so will the trumpet of God have a booming effect? You will not miss this. He will come publicly for all to see. Thirdly, God's people will be resurrected. Physically, literally, they will be resurrected. The people called here dead in Christ. So the Christians who have died, their bodies will be resurrected. Similar to how Jesus' body was resurrected. He was the first fruits. We will all follow. This is a high priority, so it happens first here in this text. And those who are still living, their bodies will be translated. Again, similar to Jesus' body at the second coming. Fourth, this is all necessary if we are going to be with the Lord. That's how he ends this little paragraph. We're going to be with the Lord. That's how he tops it off. All of this transformation is necessary. Our bodies need to be glorified and perfected if we are going to spend eternity with a holy God. And all of this personal renewal is set within a grander universe, morphing cosmic renewal. Okay, so if you're reading the Bible, just because the Bible applies to you doesn't mean you're the center of it, right? Doesn't mean salvation history is all about you. Salvation history is about all of the cosmos, all of the universe being renewed, not just you personally. We see this like in Revelation 21 and 22. If you skip ahead, we see the results of cosmic renewal. And it is personal. Every single one who follows Jesus Christ will be renewed, but it also is very global, cosmic, universal. I'll just read, and then we'll talk about it. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. See that global? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. That's our promise. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, or pain anymore. You see the personal aspect and also the global, cosmic, universal aspect there. Then in chapter 22, skip on over there. Verse 1 of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. 
See that river? Same one in Eden. Eden is being recreated here. Bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, what? The tree of life. See how life is being renewed here after the return of Christ? It's got 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. That life and life being yielded. And the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. Again, life, people are being healed. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So our resurrection bodies given to us by Jesus at His coming will prepare us to live forever with Him in the new Eden. All that is really good future news, but how is that going to matter this week unless Jesus comes back, right? Which I hope He does. The early church used to sit around and that would be their prayer. When they got together, they prayed, Jesus, come soon. Jesus, come back tomorrow. The context were different and perhaps their hearts were also different. But until He comes back, how can we use this certain knowledge of the future to drive What's going on now? A couple points. First, let's start with what we learn. When Christ returns again, it will be to renew life, to, to take a destructive evil force like death and transform it to that animated energy and vigor all for His glory. And if we believe that transformation from death to life in the future is inevitable in the last chapter, then we should be able to believe in the preceding chapters, that God still has the power to transform. So think about this. A rock-solid confidence in God's future transforming grace and power should lend me to believe that He can transform people in my life now. Right? This is a big deal. Think about your marriage. If you're here and you're married today, some of our marriages have been burnt by failures, you feel like there's pieces of your marriage that are dead. Maybe the husband has ruined intimacy because of his porn struggle. Maybe the wife has failed to respect the husband through nagging and now there's distance and separation. You just feel like part of it has died. I'm saying take hope. If the God whose promise in the future can wipe out death completely and raise people from the dead like He raised Jesus from the dead, He certainly has the power to resurrect the dead points of your marriage. Right? That's good news. You're thinking, dude's never going to change. Never going to change. He's never going to change. Or she's always going to be like that. No! God has the power to change people. We can look ahead and trust Him in the future. How about a loved one? Somebody in your life, a family circle, sometimes we will give these people, not even without meaning, a death sentence. Somebody who's been so rebellious, right? So callous towards God, you might be tempted to think, I don't need to pray for them because they're never going to turn. If God can defeat death in the future, He can defeat it now. And we have hope that He can save our loved ones, our children, we've been praying for for years, our co-workers. There's a lot of hope today because of this. And while we're at it, how about people in the church, right? It's, it's amazing social experience here that Jesus has done. It's like, let's take people who rebel against God in their hearts, who don't know each other, and slam them all together, and say, love one another. 
That's what he's done in the church, right? What that means is sometimes there's conflict within the church. It's like an 80s bad TV drama or soap opera or something. Every two-hour episode in our community groups each week, there's all this drama or at least potential for it because people have had their feelings hurt. I don't like what she said to me last week. She thinks she's more spiritual than me. That guy's so lazy, he's always going to be bringing his family down. All of these things happen in the church, but we have hope in God's transforming power. If He can defeat death in the future... He can transform us in this church today. And one more thing. If it's indeed true, as Christ crossed, get this picture, Christ is crossing the stadium of heaven to enter the ring of His creation as He ducks under the rope. Death sees Him coming and shudders. And death taps out. That's because Christ is Victor, if that indeed is true, then we do not need to fear death, right? Fear of death touches our life in a lot of ways. David Pallison calls uh, these things shadows of death. Things that remind us of death that haven't happened now. Things like loss of health, right? They can be scary. Loss of a loved one. Reminder of our own mortality, our own death. Loss of youth. Loss of usefulness. As we age, we feel that. Loss of meaning. All of these are foreshadows of death. And they're scary when they happen to you. But I don't have to live in fear because I know Christ has finally triumphed over it. And the end of the story, I win. Right? The end of this movie... I'm going to be the champion because of what Christ has done, not because of what I have done. And that can give me a lot of hope when I see a loss of a loved one as my health continues to fail or I feel useless as I age. So there's a lot of ways to take this doctrine and pull it out of the future, dump it into your life this week, and gain hope. And my prayer today is that we can do this. See God as renewing life in Christ in the future with His second coming and then trust in that. Draw from that to have hope here today. Let's pray together. God, I pray in Christ's name that You would come. Come, Jesus, and end this mess of death We know it has been conquered in Your death and resurrection, Jesus. And yet, the venom is still here, though the stinger has been removed. And so we want You to come for many reasons, but also to renew life. So I pray that You do that. Until You do, God, we as a people, we would love more hope, more faith. So grant us that as we look forward to the worldview founded in the second coming of Christ. We look forward and live our lives this week. Be with us, God. We pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let's stand together and